We hope you enjoy this latest episode of It Takes a Village with guest host Amanda Scoggins. Please note that all anecdotes discussed in this episode are not about one singular client, but about multiple experiences or a conglomerate of multiple clients. Welcome to It Takes a Village. Today, we get the pleasure to visit with Daniel Peters, a licensed marriage family therapist in California. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this, Amanda. We are really excited to hear a little bit about your story and to, of course, get um, some feedback and resources that we can share with our with our community. So we're very excited to have you. Um, we'd love for you to give us a little bit of your backstory. What's your specialty and why did you choose to pursue a career as a LMFT or licensed marriage family therapist? So um, I, I've always been one of those people that people like seek out to just kind of tell things to, you know, I'm the person on the bus where the person who's struggling just kind of sits down next to them and just tells them everything. Um, I'm so I decided I might as well make a career out of it and be able to actually help people and, um, you know, make a living off of it as well. Um, And then I specialize in working with parents of special needs kids. um, And I kind of fell into that to some extent. Um, I, I, as a, as a bachelor's degree student, I went after, um, I just got a job doing respite and um, started working with families with kids with special needs. And from there, it just kind of grew. Um, I went from doing respite to doing rec therapy to um, working with families in in ABA capacity. Um, I also worked with parents with special needs as well. Um, And then in an early intervention program, I ran an early intervention program as well. So um, I've been in various capacities. I've been working with families with kids with special needs for about 20 years. And um, when I decided to start my private practice, I was looking around and trying to figure out like, where can I serve the community the best and where, where is the biggest hole in services with my skill set? And there is so many services for kids with special needs, but there really aren't a lot of services for the parents. And throughout all of this time, one of the things that I noticed is that this is this is a hard experience. Having a child with special needs is a hard experience. And it's something that is very isolating and you don't have, there isn't a lot of support. And even the support that parents with average functioning kids have, you lose a lot of that support as a parent with special needs. Because a lot of times you're, I was talking to someone the other day and they were saying, you know, my dad doesn't believe my child has autism. And so, you know, anything you do to help 
your your child, you don't have the support of your the greater community. And so it can be extra difficult, you know, just being a parent because you don't have the support that other people do. It's, it's so true. It's one of those pieces that is really um, missing on all all levels, right? When, when kids are young and as they get older. And we talk a lot about parents being involved in ABA services and getting trained in the ABA, but we don't often talk about parents seeking support themselves. Um, is this something that you experience in your own personal life or is it just something that you've come in contact with? in your career it's it is actually something that I come come into um in my personal life I I'm actually a mother of a child on the spectrum I also have a another child who is just has an IEP for other reasons. Um, so I am very, you know, I not only do I have the professional experience, but I also have the personal experience. And then there's also this part of like, as a respite care provider, um, I ended up traveling with some of my families. And so, you know, I have the experience that I have like with my family, but I also have the experience that I have, you know, with other people's families. So, you know, I've, I've traveled with kids who are in wheelchairs. I've traveled with kids who have sensory issues and the train and the plane is just, you know, unbelievably stressful. But what's beautiful about the experiences that it sounds like you've had is like before, while you were working towards your career, you had such varied experience and you got the opportunity to really see that even though everybody's experience is so different, there's that shared experience of the stress that is that um, goes on and the high levels of emotion that can occur when you're a parent supporting a child with impactment. And then for you to be able to have that own personal connection, it must make your practice so much more compassionate and for you to be able to really connect with the parents on a level that some parents don't receive because like you said our communities aren't necessarily set up for that support yeah yeah it's definitely I feel like I'm really able to provide a level of compassion and empathy that you might not be able to get in other experience at other situations. Well, and as a mother of a child living with um, different abilities or special needs, are there experiences in your life that have been meaningful to pass on to other families with children living with different abilities? And, and, Maybe those experiences come from your work, but it would really be great to hear about some from your own personal life as well. I honestly think that the work that I did before I became a parent really helped me to be able to approach being a parent myself with a little bit more confidence than I would have otherwise, because I was able to see, you know, the changes that occur and how coming, uh, coming at things from certain angles can be really helpful and how that, how, you know, even if you're having a really 
hard time, you know, right now, that that doesn't mean that things are going to be rough six months from now or two years from now or 15 years from now. It's so I think it really one of the things that I've really learned over all of this is that things change and that you can do you can make changes in, in, in your life. You're not stuck. And I think that I could have gotten into a place where I felt really hopeless as a parent if I hadn't had those experiences before. Wow. And on a personal level, did you ever seek help from a therapist when you were experiencing like the stress and storm parts? Actually, you know, I was actually talking to somebody about this the other day that one of the things about being a therapist is that um, we tend to seek help probably a lot sooner than other people because we know how helpful it can be. (laughs) And um, so, yeah, I have definitely sought help quite a bit um, for stress and, you know, parent caregiver burnout and, you know, I definitely have sought help for, for those things. And I'm over here vigorously shaking my head. Yes. to what you're saying, because as practitioners, we have to typically engage in a lot of hours just to get our certificate. And those hours of training teach us that the emotional connection that we have to our children can sometimes get in the way of our ability to provide services. And that's why as a BCBA, ethically, we're not allowed to provide services to family or friends because that emotion gets in the way. And I think that that piece for myself personally helps reinforce reaching out for help for myself faster. And it's something that I would, that I love sharing with parents to take that pressure and judgment off of themselves and know that, you know, this is a high emotional thing and it is is perfectly acceptable to reach out for support for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there really is. Sorry, go ahead. No, please. You go. I would love to hear what you have to say. (laughs) There really is a part here where it's like, you look at your family and your kids and you don't have the same kind of distance that you would if you were working from a professional standpoint. You know, it's, I, I, I'm thinking about a friend that I had that's actually a BCBA and she also has a child with special needs and, and her son was having problems at preschool, but she just couldn't figure out what it was. And so she kind of came to me and another friend that was a BCBA and we were talking about it and we were able to problem solve it. But it really, you know, you would think even as a, as a professional that works with other kids, she was feeling really hard on herself because she was like, why can't I figure this out? But as a parent, your emotions are too tied into it. And there's too much, um, there's just too much going on emotionally sometimes to really be able to figure out what's going on and to do it on your own. And that's why we have the community that we have is to recognize that in order to really care for our kids, we need to be able to ask the, ask for the help that we need. And that's I okay. Am- that, that's the shame in it. 
Exactly. No shame in this. And, you know, you and I had talked about at one time that analogy of the being on the airplane and you and how we're instructed as adults to put our masks on first and how uncomfortable that sounds at first until you really apply it and you realize if I pass out, I can't put it on my child. And applying that to this realm as well of if I don't have mm-hmm. the coping skills, if I don't have the support I need, how can I provide that for my kiddo? And really understanding that that's the normal experience. And I would really love to hear how therapy benefited you um, as a parent when you sought it and maybe as a practitioner too, because there's a lot of stress that comes with that, but you know, really as a parent, how did that help or benefit? So, so one of the things that therapy really helps me with is to a kind of see things from an outside perspective. So I'm not taking things quite as personally. Um, you know, it's hard when you're a parent and your child is kind of going through a a stage where they're talking back or going through just kind of a difficult stage. And it's really tempting to take that personally and, you know, assume that that's the way your child actually feels about you or to assume that this has something to do with your parenting skills that, you know, your child is talking back to you because you're a horrible mother and, you know, you kind of, as a parent, you can go down that kind of catastrophic path and having an outside person that's looking at it and saying, no, wait a minute, this is, this is a normal age appropriate thing. Or, you know, maybe this is more about their frustration with this and it's really not about you. And just so having someone that can really empathize but then also like remind you, Hey, are you putting your mask on first? You know, it's because if, if you're not taking care of yourself, you don't have the energy to do the things you have to do as a parent. You bring up some really great points. And I I find that even sometimes the cultural background of the family that you're supporting or your own cultural background can really affect those those thoughts that you have in your head about how you perceive and the judgments that you uh, make of yourself based on your child's behavior. And have you seen that those um, impact uh, a parent wanting to seek out as well? And do you have any advice for parents who may be hesitating to seek therapy for their family, whether it be that that, um, cultural myth or um, just hesitation that maybe lies within a different judgment in their minds? Yeah, I think that there's a part here where it's we can really struggle with these cultural assumptions about both disability um, and seeking help in general there's um in in the dominant culture at this point there's still this fear that if I'm seeking mental health treatment that there's something fundamentally wrong with me and if I show other people if I tell other people that I'm seeing a therapist then they're going to think something's wrong with me and 
the hard part is getting getting past that and figuring out a way to see if the treatment is right for you, whether or not your overall culture or the subculture that you're in, in sees getting help that way. And so, you know, I think part of it is really, you know, listening to your gut. And, you know, if you're waking up every morning and hiding under the covers because you can't, you don't want to face the day, or, you know, you find yourself, you know, crying because you don't know what to do with your child, or, you know, just overwhelmed with the disaster that is your house because you're putting so much time and energy into your your kids schooling and all of the special um, appointments that they have you know you if you're feeling overwhelmed it's worth it to try to seek the help and follow your gut on whether or not you know you're you're feeling overwhelmed and you need that help and if you know, at, at first, if you really are, if your culture is hard on people that seek help, you don't have to be open about it to start off with. And you can just try it out and see if it's something that works with your family. And if it's not something that works with your family, then you can go on to something else. But it's worth trying out the, the different options and seeing what, what works for your family. It really is. And it's one of the um, driving factors for my own self as to why I love this, uh, this value or thought of Kaizen, this good change, right? Because mm-hmm. with Kaizen, with the theory of Kaizen, it really tells you that making mistakes and asking for help and getting feedback is literally part of the process of getting to be the best, excellent perfect, whatever it is that you're seeking is through that process. And it takes that um, judgment that is often connected with asking for help out and it makes it better. It, it, it makes it uh, uh, more valuable for someone to try and engage in, in seeking support. Are you familiar with Kaizen at all? Like, well, what is your experience with that? I think, you know, my only familiarity with it is that you're telling me about it the first time we met (laughs) because you seem to really love that. And I, you know, I really, I like that idea of, you know, recognizing that in order to have that full growth, it's okay to make mistakes. And that's that you don't make that growth without testing something here and there, making mistakes, learning from the mistakes, and then moving on. Well, and as a parent, the minute you have a child, you are, you feel this pressure, this external pressure to know exactly how to handle everything. Yes. Yes. And it can, and again, like the, my, my real passion towards Kaizen is that it takes that pressure off of you and it lets you know, even though you're an adult and even though you have a child, it doesn't mean you know everything. Yep. And even when you have a second child, it doesn't, you know, the things that work for the first child are not the things that work for the second child. And so even like parenting is this process. And I think it starts with pregnancy of both recognizing that there are a lot of things out in this world that you just don't have control of and of 
testing things out, figuring out what works and figuring out what doesn't work. And then also being okay with the fact that when you figure out what works, sometimes everything changes. <laughs> and that's what therapy is for. You can go in and vent and express yourself and get that reinforcement. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So um, even like we're talking about, even during the toughest times, there are always beautiful moments that make every struggle worthwhile. What were some goals and milestones that you and your child hit together that you'd like to share? Or um, maybe some milestones of some uh, parents that you've supported in the past that where you can really see that like yes this was the biggest struggle and look at this beautiful lotus flower that came out of the mud i think and the biggest one that i'm thinking of is that i had this family that the child had some negative associations with like medical buildings if you think about like a medical building, especially like the old school medical buildings, you have the um, the buzzing of the, the lights. You have these huge like open spaces with like hard surfaces that echo a lot. And then you add the association of like getting shots and being poked and prodded and like having to sit still while mom's having these conversations with this scary person that tries to interact with you, but you know, isn't always great. And you end up in this situation, you ended up with a kid that was terrified of medical buildings and he would go in and really like he would panic and freak out and just melt down. And we would, you know, kicking, screaming, yelling. And this is not, you know, this is not behavior that you can have in a, in a hospital, in a, just a normal medical building. And the mom was having a lot of anxiety about it as well, because she knew that the second that she walked into that building, he was going to start freaking out. And so she would start getting um, panic attacks as well um, from the idea of taking her child to the doctor. And this was a child that had part of the reason he had the associations is that someone that had high medical needs. Um, And so we had this situation where as the um, therapist involved, I worked with the mom on relaxation exercises and the thoughts that she was having around going into the, into these medical buildings so that her anxiety wasn't feeding into his fear. And then they could work with him going into the buildings and, you know, kind of work on, on, the um, extinction bursts where he would freak out for a while. And we had weeks and weeks and weeks where he would freak out and we would do a little bit at a time and then back up. And then, you know, so that he could get used to it and have become having better associations with it. But I was able to help the mom with that so that she could, could deal with the stress of all of this, situation because it's not just like she wasn't just having panic attacks and you know she was having all of this anxiety about it but there was also this part where 
their anxiety was feeding, their fear was feeding each other. Like he would see that she was worried about it and she was freaking out about it and it would make him more worried and freaked out about it. And so when we were able to help her get to where she was calmer about it, then he was able to be more calm about it. And then we were, you know, then, then after, you know, a little bit of time, we were able to get him into a doctor's office and get him the help that he needed. So it was Right. And what an excellent example, because you're really talking about something that all of us have to do at some point with medical mm-hmm. procedures. And I would say that for most people, um, my little sister being the outlier, um, medical procedures are not fun and you don't look forward to them, you know, but it's part of life. In life, there are things that we have to do and things that we want to do. And as a parent, it can be hard to differentiate. Like this is a have to. And I know that my child having a colossal meltdown um and so the heat rising in my body is normal let's take a deep breath so that we don't escalate this situation but that is not something that you can often come to on your own as a parent and be able to accept that it's it's our role to be calm through these times and and to do it on our own too oh i'm so sorry you paused but i'd love to hear your thoughts on that there we go. I oh, couldn't hear you for. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Well, and really, what I was saying is that um, you know we medical procedures are absolutely necessary, right? And in life, we have have tos and want tos, and often with those have tos, our kiddos, you know, they express themselves in a very large way. And if yeah. we are able to regulate our internal body heat or our internal experience, we often end of escalating and therapy is a great place for you to learn what is a have to in life so that you can fact check and be like this medical is a have to and and it's okay what are your thoughts on that well and then there's also the part of like not just like this medical stuff is a have to but this you know, this play date is a want to. And being able to recognize that the want to's, sometimes the want to's become have to's because they're good for your mental health. But sometimes the want to's are just putting too much pressure on you. And so really recognizing, you know, discriminating what the have to's and what the want to's are, because we don't need to put so much on our shoulders sometimes. And I think a lot of times we have higher expectations than, you know, we really need to. And what an excellent segue into one of my favorite topics about like, what is some advice you can share with parents about prioritizing self-care and spending time on yourself? Yeah. You know, I, I, as parents, it is really hard to even think about giving ourselves self-care sometimes, but I like Amanda said, I really like the airplane um, analogy because it is very, very true. If you aren't putting yourself first, if you aren't taking the, you know, five minutes here to take a couple of deep breaths when you're feeling stressed, if you aren't taking the time to, you know, 
leave the little one with someone else so that you can take a shower. If you aren't taking the time to get, get respite so that you can go out and see some friends once in a while, you aren't able to be the best parent for, for your child. You're going to be, you know, you're going to be less emotionally available. You're going to be closer to snapping at times. You're going to be, um, you know, just less patient and less able to really deal with the day-to-day stuff that needs to get done, especially in this day and age when so many parents are like having to figure out this like distance learning thing. And even if they're not doing distance learning, they only have their child at school for like a couple of hours. So, you know, having, even if you just take, you know, a second or two to take a couple of deep breaths or to sit down and and relax it's it's better to do some self-care than none no self-care so does self-care have to be something that you're setting aside 20 minutes an hour every day to do or is there are there practices that you can integrate in an instant yeah and there there definitely are practices that you can integrate into an instant you know just having a um, like safe space that you visualize for a second while you're doing the dishes or using mindfulness practices where, you know, you are, I don't know why the dishes thing is coming up a lot, but where you're, you know, sitting there doing the dishes and instead of focusing on all of the things that you have to do, you just take a minute and focus on what you're doing in the moment. So like what the water feels like on your hands, what the sound of the water sounds like, like the smell of the water and hopefully not the dirty dishes. Um, but, but, you know, just really um, taking a moment here and there to just be in the now and really be in your body. And, you know, just there are so many little things that you can do throughout your day that can help you to function better and to feel like you're, you've cared for yourself more. Well, and one of the points that you had made was uh, when you're, when, when you're feeling as if you need support uh, or if, if you're feeling at a loss, like really try, try everything because it might work, right? Therapy might work. You don't know. Trying it is the best piece. And it seems that that, that uh, message applies here as well is that yes yeah, self-care can be overwhelming and challenging to start but start small and yeah. what are some small ways that you would recommend because I know some people get very terrified when they hear this mindfulness practice you want me to sit still for five minutes like do you know what I do um so how would you start small with something like that so honestly I would just take start small by taking a little bit here and there. And I mean, by a little bit, like, I mean, by like just consciously stopping every once in a while and taking a deep breath and just, you know, just stopping. And, you know, I wouldn't suggest doing it when you're about to get kicked in the face or something like that. But, you know, when things are calm for a second, because parts that, you know, as a parent, there are calm parts, you know, there's, there's the calm before the storm, but during that calm, like you can take that deep breath and you'll be better able to handle things when they get rough. Right. And one of the, um, one of the strategies that I like to implement, it's 
no ABA, but you know, psych and ABA are together. We're in the same family. Um, is putting up those post-it notes or writing with a dry erase marker on my mirror, a, a note to just remind myself like all is well, take a deep breath because often in those stressful moments to be able to stop and breathe, right? You don't want to stop and breathe when your child's about to kick you in the face, but maybe you step back and you see a post-it that says all is well. And you're like, okay, we're going to get through this. Okay. This is great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there is something that, um, therapy, one of the things that therapy can help in that area is that a lot of times we have, a certain thought pattern that we have underneath situations like that. So, you know, where your child's throwing a huge tantrum and you're, there's like this thought pattern that goes along with it of like, you know, I'm always going to be fighting these tantrums. My, this is like, uh, obvious, uh, this is this is this shows me that my child is struggling. He's struggling because I did something wrong, and then you know, and just this these kind of catastrophic thoughts. And if if we together in the therapeutic relationship can identify something that reminds you that this tantrum isn't about something that you did in the past, that this is just, you know, it's going to be okay, or, you know, this isn't personal or something along those lines, like it can make a big difference in your day and your ability to cope with it. And so having those little reminders and figuring out what those reminders are going to be so that you can use them for a second here and there during your day can be really helpful. Yes, and it is something that I love about therapy and ABA in general is that planning for the future, you know, uh, in the moment when things are high stress, probably not the best time to come up with a plan of action, um, but definitely we can look back on those times and assess what we can change moving forward. And that's what those opportunities of meeting with the community, your peer support, um, having a therapist in your back pocket to um, provide that extra level of care and support for yourself. So you can get that mask on and then get your kiddos mask on too. (laughs) Yeah. Can you share an experience where you counseled a client who had been at their absolute wit's end and walk us through how you understood what they needed and help them through um, their struggle? Sort of similarly to the thought pattern that you just walked us through. I really enjoyed being able to hear an example of that. And as you were saying, I was like, oh my goodness, that was the last tantrum. That's exactly what I thought. But could you walk us through uh, that process with a client that you supported that was just at their wit's end? How were you able to assess what they needed and get through that? Because we have a lot of parents who um, may have cultural myths that they're fighting against. They may Mm -hmm. have family unit myths that they're fighting against and their children are experiencing intense behavior and often aggressive and frequent. And those parents are really at a point where they're feeling at a complete loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, Let's see here. So one of the families that I worked with, they were the mother, let me see here. (laughs) 
there was in this family there was more than one um child with special needs and they the two children would feed off of each other and um they like she was at a point where she couldn't go out into public because they were the two of them would you know they were running around and screaming and yelling you know if she went into the grocery store she couldn't keep them safe and corralled enough that you know it wasn't that it was possible to 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 go out in public and so she we started with you know the we they had the ABA therapy and then um I was the therapist on the case and we she and I started talking about what her thoughts around going out in public were and what her thoughts around just um providing discipline for her children not just dis- discipline but just providing like negative re- negative reinforcement here and there and it was just con- consequences um <laughs> that's the best term there um but she would she had a lot of feelings about providing consequences for the kids. Um, there was, when we really talked about it, even though the kids' disabilities had nothing to do with anything that she had ever done, she still had this, both this grief about her children having special needs and also this self-blame. So she felt that in some way she was responsible for for her kids' special needs. And then she also had this place where she felt so guilty about the things that he that they were going to miss and the things that they might not be able to do. And, you know, this was, you know, they were seven and eight, you know, so it was not like, you know, we don't know what the future was going to hold, but she had, she had a lot of, um, a lot of these feelings coming up. And every time she thought about providing consequences, the guilt would come up. So, you know, I, I don't want to put them in timeout because their life is going to be so hard in the, in the first place. I, I don't want to put them in timeout because if I do that, then I, I'm contributing again to making their lives miserable or to doing all of this. And so, sorry, you pot, you. Oh, you're still going. You're doing great. I can hear you. Yes. Um, And what a touching story. I, yeah. So we really worked on her thought patterns behind that of that, you know, looking at the reality of this was not something that had anything to do with her. And even if it did have something to do with her, which it, it, it didn't in this case, but even if it did have something to do with her, you know, looking at, okay, well, how can I, you know, what can I do moving forward and what can I do to make things make things better. And so we, you know, worked on looking at providing consequences as a way of long-term 
keeping them safe and getting them so that they could go out in public and so that their lives were better. And so we kind of reshaped those thoughts around her, um, around going out in public and around the consequences so that she could provide appropriate consequences for her kids and not feel the guilt around that. And just, you know, also kind of start alleviating some of that guilt and that grief around her kids' special needs. What a a very touching story. And I think it's just such a great example of how, how therapy can be this um, for parents is this great addition to the puzzle piece of services that they're putting together for their kiddos. And at the end of the day, the ABA therapist is there to train parents and is there to hear about what's going on so that they can individualize the program for the, the kiddo. But they're not there to um, to listen and problem solve through those those challenges with the parents, their specific needs. And so, bringing having that external therapist to, as a safe place for you as a parent to really mm-hmm. express what you're feeling. Would you recommend having like a, a family therapist collaborating with the ABA team, um, even if it's the parents therapist, like collaborating? Yeah. What would I think be the benefit of that. Oh, so sorry. I think there's definitely. I mean, I think that there are families out there that it's not necessarily like necessary. I think there's, you know, there are families that it's really, you know, things are really black and white, and they're, you know, they can you can just go in, and that's not needed. But I think that there are also families where the the ABA therapy isn't just. that the support of a therapist is needed in ABA therapy because there are so many emotions around all of this. And sometimes behavior isn't all about, um, isn't always about the, the, the triggers sometimes well and sometimes it's not as obvious of a trigger sometimes there's there's like trauma triggers and things like that that you guys come across that having a family therapist involved can help as well well and with your ABA background you have this true understanding of how to help walk parents down the path of understanding how to apply ABA because there is therapy is so much more uh, well-known and, and uh, a, a household name, whereas ABA can be kind of foreign um, when you're first starting. And the importance of having someone to be able to check in with about that, how would you, how do you feel about that? I think there's a there's a lot of fear around ABA sometimes because it's so it can be so unknown that having someone in your back pocket that you can talk to about, you know, I don't know if this is right for my family or, you know, things like that. And that can, you know, help you recognize that the parts of the process and can explain the process to you so that you're not feeling completely lost in this situation. I, you know, I had, I had a friend that I was talking to starting ABA really recently and they were terrified by it because they didn't, they just didn't know what it was going to be. And, you know, they, they spent 
the week before services started, just really anxious and nervous about it. And I actually spent a lot of time talking to her about it. And then um, they started and they're in love with their specialist. Like they think it was the best thing that they've ever done. Um, and it wasn't as, as scary as it you know, as they thought it was going to be like, it, it, you know, it's, they've really gotten a lot out of it and are really happy. So and I'm sure it probably really helped to be able to have an ear uh, to talk to and a shoulder to lean on about this and to get that professional feedback from your own personal and professional experiences. Well, yeah. Daniel, it's been such a pleasure to be able to get to hear about your personal stories and about your experiences. And we would love to just ask you a couple of questions about um, your own practice Um, Mm -hmm. for our listeners. What is your process of assessing and taking on a new client? So um, I usually... When we when we start services, the first pr- part of the process is to um, have a consult call, and so during that consult call, I will make sure that you know your level of need isn't is high is low enough that I can see you virtually. So um, my practice is at at this point with COVID, it's 100% virtual. So I do all video sessions. Um, So I need to make sure that you're, you know, you're not going to end up in a dangerous position because I am you know, across the state. So, um, you know, I assess for suicide, suicidality and, um, a couple of other things to make sure that you're appropriate for video counseling. Um, I also will look to make sure that there isn't something that is out of my wheelhouse. I do on top of the, um, work with families with kids with special needs. I, um, I worked with addiction and eating disorders and like a whole ton of other stuff in mixed in um, while I was getting my degrees. Um, But just to make sure that you're someone that I can feel like I can, can help. Um, And then we also, you know, make sure that we have time frame, time slots that work together and that you have, you're comfortable with the technology that I use and all of that stuff. So this is within the state of California. And so if someone were listening outside of the state of California, they could go through the same process, um, but with a, a provider in their state. Yeah. With the provider in their, in their state, um, therapy can only be within state lines. So, uh, you know, if you're in North Carolina, you have to see a therapist in North Carolina, or if you're in Delaware, you have to see someone in Delaware. So thank you for that feedback. And, and what's the best way to reach out to you for services? If someone in California were really interested in, in getting started or just seeking more questions, what would be the best way? So, um, I have a website, it's www.daniellelmft.com and, um, you just go to that website and there is, I think it says, there's a button on almost every page that says contact me or set up a consult and you just click on that and you fill out a little bit of paperwork and it, um, 
you find an appointment time and it sets an appointment time for that 15 minute consult that I talked about. Oh, fantastic. So that was www.daniellelmft.com or www.daniellelmft.com. Yep. Oh, fantastic. Well, it has really been an absolute pleasure to get to meet with you and I and to talk with you today. And I'm looking forward to working with you more in the future. Thank you for providing our audience or our listeners with um, such great information and resources. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. I really, I, I'm so happy to be able to be here and to talk about these things because our, our parents need this so much and they just need the information is so thank you for inviting me to do this. I really appreciate it. Oh, an absolute pleasure. I completely agree with you. Our parents are the underserved population and we need to get resources for them and let them know we're here for you. You're not alone. It takes a village and that's what we're here for. Thank you so much. All right. Yay. This has been a Cadient production.